Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'm your guys we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. For most of the 1980s, the road from the MIAA, the Mid-America Intercollegiate Athletics Association, to the NCAA Division II Women's Basketball Tournament ran through either Cape Girardeau or Warrensburg. The respective schools, Southeast Missouri State University and Central Missouri State University, now the University of Central Missouri, were rivals, and their clashes were epic. Oh, we did pretty good. I mean, our biggest rival was Central Missouri, uh, and we battled that year. I mean, we beat them there. They came to Cape and beat us. We went back and beat them again. And then where did we go? We had to go somewhere and play, and they ended up winning by two. So uh, I think we could have made we could have made a, a trip or two to uh, the Final Four. I don't know if we would have been the Final Four, but we we could have gave everybody a pretty good run for their money. That was Pat Cologne. Born and raised in Cape Girardeau, she was a star player on the Southeast Missouri State University's women's basketball teams in the mid-1980s. I don't think I think it was if you had a decent season, you might get a bid in there. But most of the time, you know, like they do now, a one a player fifteen. You know, they're gonna take the best to play the the not the worst, but you know, the lower seed. So I'm trying to think. I know we got a berth because we had to go to Alaska one year and play, and then we had to come back and played somewhere else, and then they sent us to Texas to play, and then we came back home and played. So I believe, if I remember correctly, I think you you could get a bid, but, you know, it was just, it depended. So we tried to win our conference every time we could, Uh, and most of the time we did. Between 1983 and 1991, CMO and CMSU combined for five Final Four appearances, with Central Missouri State winning the NCAA Division II National Championship in 1984. Only a few years prior, both teams, as well as other women's college programs around the state, competed in tournaments and championships organized not by the NCAA, but by the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, known as the AIAW. Over the course of this series, we've highlighted several efforts, whether by individuals or groups, to expand access to athletic and educational opportunities for women. These efforts ebbed and flowed over the course of the 20th century, ultimately accumulating in the passage of Title IX in 1972. For today's episode, we're going to focus on the critical first decade of the Title IX era, roughly 1972 to 1982, by looking at the short but significant life of the AIAW. The origins of the AIAW lie in the debates over competition, play days, and tournaments that we have so far highlighted in the series. Yet the organization was not officially formed until the 1970s. Almost from the moment of its creation, the AIAW found itself at odds with the National Collegiate Athletic Association, known widely as the NCAA, over the latter's position on women's sports. As the 1970s progressed, the NCAA's position on the subject evolved and put it on a collision course with the AIAW. 
For today, let's look at the history of the AIAW from the perspective of several players, coaches, and administrators who were involved with it, including Linda Dollar, Mary Kay Hunter, Ronald Reidinger, Reba Sims, Barbara Coward, Sally Beard, Kelly Yates, and Pat Colon, about how its efforts to expand athletic accommodations changed the course of women's sports, but also played a role in the organization's eventual decline. While some early administrators and physical educators opposed expansions of competition in women's athletics by comparing it to the excesses, corruption, and greed that had filtered into men's sports, advocates for competition developed a vocal movement by the mid-20th century. Guided by several small organizations, the National Joint Committee on Extramural Sports for College Women and the Division for Girls and Women's Sports of the American Association for Health, Physical Education, and Recreation emerged as leaders in the regulation and administration of women's athletic programs across the United States by the 1950s. With the National Joint Committee on Extramural Sports for College Women ceding control to the DGWS in the 1960s, the Division for Girls and Women's Sports turned its attention towards establishing a nationwide alliance of institutions, what would later be called the Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. By the late 1960s, DGWS orchestrated several championship tournaments in gymnastics, track and field, speed swimming, badminton, and volleyball. Yet despite the new levels of competition and the crowning of champions in respective sports, some institutions and athletic programs felt that the DGWS did not go far enough in addressing concerns centered on funding, tournament structure, education, and the commission itself and pushed for a membership group that would better regulate the emergence and expansion of women's sports, particularly with Title IX on the horizon. Well, first, like the first volleyball national championships were under the DGWS, which was the Division of Girls and Women's Sports. Okay? There's no mention of the AIAW because that wasn't formed yet. And those are from 1975. And so... We we then evolved into the AIW in about 1973, maybe, something like that. And so there was a period of about eight or nine years that we were AIW that uh, we were thriving. We had different recruiting rules. We had all some differences that we thought were good differences Mm -hmm. that were um, better for student-athletes than the NCAA had. In 1971, the DGWS made the move to disband the Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics for Women in favor of a new governing body called the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, or the AIAW. Managed by physical educators, coaches, and administrators, the AIAW worked to create a group that would accept member institutions under the banner of academic and athletic excellence, as well as offer an updated regulatory means for competition, championships, and tournaments. Starting with over 200 charter members, the membership quickly grew to nearly 1,000 by the end of the 1970s. With the passage of Title IX in 1972, the AIAW worked to ensure the new law's enforcement and that no outside groups, namely the NCAA, would challenge its goals. This included carefully navigating the subsequent amendments offered to the original Title IX in an effort to lessen its enforcement capabilities. At the time, as college administrations were compelled to reallocate funding to all athletic programs, a chorus of dissenters argued that such a mood would expand women's programs and retract men's programs at the same time. They got AIW going. But if we hadn't had uh, uh, either one, we'd have nothing. Right. You know, because uh, the, the, the men ex- uh, aren't, u- aren't used to it, of course, you know, that we're working with. Mm-hmm. None of them. They still would take, teach their courses and uh, paint it a different way. 
you know, that uh, they were taking uh, money away from the men or opportunity away from some of the men things because they're having to give uh, uh, Title IX title money to the women, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, that, that was always there the whole always. time. Yeah. And, uh, and it really, but I, th I should say at some point, too, that AIW really flourished during that period of time when we did. You know, and uh, before NCAA and we were one came of in, the schools within Missouri that really took the lead. The lead of that. Yeah, the lead. While the shift to the AIAW helped strengthen key components in the administration of women's sports, there were also criticisms from within. One of the main issues centered on the decision to restrict scholarships and recruitment in an effort to prevent some of the problems and inequalities that had seeped into the men's athletics games. The restrictions on scholarships and recruiting were short-lived, however, due to internal pressure and lawsuits. Even with recruiting and scholarship opportunities expanded, though, many schools still grappled with limited budgets and limited opportunities. Nevertheless, the ability to offer scholarships and recruit off-campus had a major impact on women's athletics. And then when um, the AIAW, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, started to form, then there were some really not that much because I don't think there were any rules regarding recruiting. Do you remember any? Not too well, many. I mean, you do with it. Right. I mean, you can't have any money to give them. Right? Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, like yeah, the first kid I recruited well, was first... from Kansas City. Yeah. And I was playing softball mm -hmm. on uh, the Memorial weekend. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't play in this game because I have to go talk to this player. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I ever actually went and visited somebody out of town to ask them to come and play. Mm -hmm. And she was with her mom, and I said, we have a scholarship that I can give you. And it wasn't much. 200. <laughs> but it was something, and, you know, their jaw just yeah. about dropped yeah. open. By the late 1970s, having weathered the storm of internal and external challenges for nearly a decade, the AIAW encountered a battle it ultimately could not win. As the 1980s dawned, the NCAA and its member institutions began to seriously consider the lucrative possibilities of hosting women's tournaments and championships. Pressure soon intensified within both the AIAW and the NCAA to address the stalemate. The AIAW wanted to continue its autonomy, but as NCAA divisional institutions began to vote to expand women's athletic opportunities, cracks began to form in the foundation. We had uh, one tuition scholarship that was shared between those two sports. So we had $2,700 to recruit with to share between two sports. Uh, our men's basketball had 16 or 15 tuition scholarships and our women's teams had one to, to share between all of us. But uh, uh, in 1980, when I got there, was the year that NAI and Division and NCAA decided they were going to start offering sports for women. Until that time, they'd never had championships for women. So the AIW had been the sole uh, association for women. But in 1980, uh, both NAI and NCAA decided that they would uh, have sports for women. And when we got there, we had a discussion about whether we were going to stay AIAW and pay separate membership fees and have separate rules 
or if we were going to leave the AIW and join the NAI so that the rules would be the same, the membership fees would be the same and everything. And uh, so we chose to leave the AIW and go into the NAI the very first year that uh, they offered sports for women. NCAA did not sponsor national championships for women. Right. And that's how the AIAW was formulated. There were a group of women, strong women, Dr. Wynn, uh, Charlotte West out of Southern Illinois, uh, Christine Grant, and several Texas. others. Yeah, the Texas Donna Lopiano, basketball. Mm -hmm. that helped formulate the KU. AIAW. Okay, because they Marley. wanted to have Marley. an avenue for yeah. women to play in organized competitions. And that became successful and then, lo and behold, in 1982, the NCAA says, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll sponsor your championships now, kind of thing. And so in 1982, there were two volleyball national championships. There was one for NCAA and there was one for AIAW. And after that, because there were, our school was one that stayed in AIW because Mary Jo was one of the founding women Mother. of that group and wasn't, a lot of people were reluctant to go right into the NCAA, so there was that kind of divisional year. And then in 1983, then we also joined the NCAA. So AIW mm -hmm. was then dissolved. For a brief period of time in the early 1980s, women's athletics had dual championship games as schools could opt to compete in the NCAA tournament, the AIAW tournament, or both. But soon enough, the opportunities available through the long-tenured and better-connected NCAA, as well as internal pressures on campus, pushed many of the most successful AIAW institutions and programs into the NCAA. As its membership dwindled, so too did the influence of the AIAW. It brought a lawsuit against the NCAA, but after the court ruled against it, the AIAW officially disbanded in 1983. The effects of the AIAW's decline reverberated through college sports. So when we moved into the NCAA, it was like, well, we don't agree with everything over here, but eventually we, we had to go in, into it together. Yeah, the NCAA really just took over. Yeah. Period. And uh, I think the schools went along with NC2A. They had to. Yeah, really. I mean, the men's Because the athletic departments were almost yes. right. all run by men. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. But we were also AIAW, which was the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And the next year, I believe, went to the NCAA for, for the women, which caused some problems, you know, we lost some, a lot of teams in the 80s, 80s and okay. early 90s. We lost a lot of field hockey programs when they went NCAA because there were a lot of men athletic directors who didn't know the sport. And so it was the first sport to be cut. I mean, you wouldn't be, you'd be so surprised how many teams there were at that time, Oklahoma and Kansas and Mizzou and Illinois and Illinois State and just so many teams in the Midwest and now we have very few. Though the AIAW is no more, it played a significant role in shaping women's athletics at the college level. The fact that so many participants in the Missouri Sports and Recreation Oral History Project spoke of its importance notes the legacy it had not only on Missourians but globally.
even though Title IX got passed in 1972, it took um, the public quite a while, certainly in the Midwest, to kind of get on board with that. Um, there were a few women, uh, you know, Missouri State got on board pretty quickly. Um, they had a, a pretty aggressive group of women who were pushing for athletics. But as one of the biggest, bigger universities in Southwest Missouri, you would kind of expect that of them. It took a little bit longer um, for the general public to realize that, hey, this is here to stay. That was a result of athletics on the men's side finally coming to reckon with the idea that uh, athletics, women's athletics is here to stay. They will have a voice in their own governance. And it, it took the NCAA a long time to come around and make room for women to be in their governance. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>